Well, my topic today is responding to modern Islam. And the question that I'm really going to be asking is, where do we start in this topic? Where is it that we start? Because if we don't start in the right place, we're not going to make much progress. Now, as Christians, we're to start where God starts, and that is by loving everyone. That's where we're to start, by loving everyone. And this includes loving, uh, loving our Christian neighbours and the, the, sorry, our Muslim neighbours and Muslim friends that we may know through our workplaces or through, through whatever contact it may be. Loving people is not easy. We mustn't assume that loving people is a simple thing to do. It's not. And in the Engaging with Islam course, which is on the URL at the top of your notes, the first session of that course is on loving everyone. Tonight, though, I'm not going to be spending time on how to love people. Because I think that as Christians, we know we are to be loving people. I think for most of us, the question is, where do we start in our learning about Islam? We know we're meant to love Muslims, but it's a religion that I think for most Christians we have little to no idea about. And that's what I want to start. I want, to, I want us to understand the context that we find ourselves in and how we start to learn about this religion. Now, the most common place that I think Christians start when they learn about Islam is the way that Muslim books present Islam or the way that a, a handbook on world religions may present Islam or maybe if you just googled and it, you said what is Islam about how it may come up and what is that way that way is it def uh, to define terms define terms so what I mean by that is we'll define what the word Islam means the word Islam is the word for submission and it's it's the, the name of the religion we might define what the word Muslim means. Muslim is the follower of the religion. We might talk about Muhammad as the main prophet. Allah is the name of God. The Quran as the main holy book. All of this happened around the year 600 AD. And there may be maps that you're given. I'm sure you're familiar with this type of learning about Islam. Uh, we will talk about the beliefs of Islam, that they believe in one God, the prophets and the day of judgment, and possibly the five pillars of Islam. Maybe you've heard about the five pillars, uh, the five daily prayers, the confession of faith, the giving of money to Islamic causes, the pilgrimage to Mecca, and the fasting. Now, they're all important things to learn. All of those definitions are important, and they certainly give you an outline of Islam, and, and I look at them in detail in, chapter, in sessions four and five of my training course. But what I have found is that they're not the best place to start. They're not the best place to start if you're, if you're a Christian and you want to learn about Islam. For most Christians, there are too many details about a religion that they're not going to be engaging with a whole lot. And learning all these details is something that they forget because they're not using this information. And it's simply not the best place to start. I want to suggest a different place to start. And that is with Christianity. So in order to understand Islam, I'm saying we need to start with Christianity. 
Because just as the Quran talks about the pillars of Islam and the beliefs of Islam, so too the Quran talks a lot about Christianity and Christians. And what it says about Christianity is actually a major belief in Islam. And if you talk to a Muslim, what they have been taught about Christianity is actually the context you'll find yourself in when you're talking to them. When you're talking to them, how they pray, pilgrimage and all that is most likely not going to be what comes up first. What will come up first is what they have been taught about you. That's what I'm going to look at first. And then secondly, I think where we need to start is how do we explain the gospel to a Muslim? So Muslims have been taught something about us. How is it that we then explain ourselves to a Muslim? That's where I believe as Christians we need to start. That is to look at Christianity in these areas and see how it relates to Islam. And so I'm going to be teaching Christianity to explain Islam. Let's have a look at the first of these then. Christianity in the Quran. Now you may be surprised to hear that the Quran speaks a lot about Christianity. You are actually a major subject of the Sharia. Remember when I held up the book of Sharia before? It has a lot to say about Christians. You thought it was a book for Muslims. You thought the Quran was a book for Muslims. Yes it is, but it has a lot to say about Christians. Have a look at point A in your notes. They said in boast, so this is a verse from the Quran. I'm going to be quoting verses from the Quran now. They said in boast, we killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the apostle of God. But they killed him not, nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them. And those who differ about this are full of doubts, with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow, for of certainty they killed him not. Now that's the Quran teaching about the death of Jesus and it's saying he did not die, he was not crucified, he only appeared to be. It's actually a form of docetism that Muhammad's picked up there, but it, the death of Jesus is important to us, isn't it? And Muslims are taught about the death of Jesus that it never happened. Now let, let me be clear, there are no historians that hold the Islamic view. Uh, this is, this is a, a view of just... As I said, it comes from what's called docetism. But there's no salvation by grace, there's no act of God, there's no death of Jesus. Look at point B in your notes. They are unbelievers who say God is the third of three. Now what do you think that might be referring to? The Trinity, that's right. They are unbelievers who say God is the third of three. No God is there but one God. The Messiah, son of Mary, was only a messenger. Messengers before him passed away. His mother was just a woman. They both ate food. That is, they're both mortal. Now, Muhammad's understanding of the Trinity is of God, Mary and Jesus. So the Quran has an outsider's view of Christianity. But still... The Quran prepares Muslims for the Trinity. It prepares them in other places to actually say to Christians, say not three. So it actually gives them lines to say to you. It's not just some vague concept. 
It actually speaks about the Trinity, giving them exact lines to ask. Of course, this is a denial of the incarnation because Jesus is not God. And look in point C in your notes. It is not fitting for the merciful, Allah, to take to himself a son. There is none in the heavens and in the earth who will not come to the merciful except as a slave. So it's not just that the Quran denies that Jesus is the Son of God. The Quran denies that anybody is the Son of God in any way. It says that, uh, now the, the inference from this is that God is not Father. He's never spoken of as Father in the Quran. So there is no fatherhood of God or no Son of God. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Muhammad understood Christianity when he's speaking against these, with our, our doctrines here. There's no quotes from the Bible in the Quran. The Quran really has an ill-informed outsider's view of Christianity. But consider this, the death of Jesus, salvation by grace, the Trinity, the incarnation, the fatherhood and son of God. Do we have any more significant, unique doctrines than those? I don't think so. They're, they're our big doctrines, aren't they? And the Quran, at just a basic level, prepares Muslims to reject, to be aware of, and to reject all of our foundational doctrines for the gospel. Now, that's some degree of preparation, isn't it? It's a lot of preparation. In fact, it's even more than that. I've got before you here the Gospel of Barnabas, which is the book that you buy, the gospel that you buy when you go to an Islamic bookshop. So you may not have realised this, but the Muslims sell a gospel. They rewrote the gospel in, this is the 14th century, this was written, but they rewrote another one in the 70s called The Gospel According to Islam. It's in your notes there and I've got an article on it on my website. But that's a certain degree of tenacity, isn't it? To actually say, I'm going to rewrite the scriptures of another religion. That's what Islam has done. And uh, I, was, I was at an Anglican church last week and there was a, uh, an elderly Anglican lady there and she, went, she said, I went to the Islamic bookshop and they sold me this. So not only are they prepared, not only does Islamic culture and 1400 years of historical theology prepare Muslims for all of our main doctrines... They've actually rewritten the Gospels. And so they, they teach against the Bible and saying it needs to be rewritten and we've got the true one here. The Quran also says in point D of your notes, look, look at this here. Permitted to Muslim men in marriage are the chaste women of the believers, that is of believing Muslims, and the chaste women of those who have been given the scriptures before you. So that is, Muslim men can marry Christian women. There's romantic preparation in the Quran. So recently we've seen many hundreds of thousands of Muslim men, predominantly young men, go into Europe. Well, they actually have a cultural preparation that they can marry Christian women. And I hope you can see that either deliberately or inadvertently, this establishes Islam very, very quickly in new areas because only the men have to go in and they've got this instruction on how to live, whereas for us we'd have a very different instruction. 
We've already seen Muhammad's great commission, and for the sake of time, I'm going to move. Uh, I won't look at that again, where Muhammad calls for the conquest and subjugation of Christians. But I just want you to consider the preparation that we've seen here from simply a plain reading of the Quran. All of our main theologies, all of our main doctrines, they're taught to argue against and reject. Romantic preparation so they can establish themselves in new areas, in Christian areas. And finally, there's that political agenda where they are to be friendly and their friendship is to be offered, but ultimately Islam is to rule. That's some preparation, isn't it? That is bread and butter Islamic teaching. Bread and butter. For 1400 years, that's, that's the way the Quran has shaped the Islamic world. What I want to do now is to swing the door the other way and see what does the Bible say about Islam? What does the Bible say about Islam? Well, when we read, say, the book of Acts, we read about the apostles of Jesus and they evangelize Jews. They evangelize Samaritans. They evangelize Roman and Jewish rulers, magicians, philosophers, idol worshippers, followers of Zeus, Artemis and John the Baptist. But we never read about them evangelizing Muslims, do we? Now there's an obvious reason for that, isn't there? That Islam comes 600 years later. The Bible does not talk about Islam directly because it's 600 years after Jesus. This actually has a result. It means that Christianity and the Bible does not directly prepare Christians for Islam in the same way that Islam prepares Muslims for Christianity. You see that? Because most of us here and in most of our Protestant churches, we go by the scriptures, we follow the Bible. And I'm not trying to take away from the doctrine of sufficiency of scripture, but when your book does not mention Islam, then Islam's an optional subject for you, isn't it? Islam is optional for Christians to learn about. And most Christians in the West will not learn about it because it's optional. It's not in the Bible, I don't have to learn it. When it comes to the Quran, though, for Muslims, it's compulsory to learn about you. It's compulsory to learn about your main doctrines. It's compulsory to learn how to argue against them. The result of this is that Muslims who learn their religion or just part of their culture are prepared for Christians. It's compulsory. They've got the books on the subject. They've got a whole range of tools because that's what the Quran's telling them to do. For Christians, though, we're generally not prepared for Islam. And by and large, we don't know where to start. Now, I don't want to scare you by the first half of this talk. That's the first half. I don't want to scare you, but I do want you to understand our context. The church... The Christian church has been the main educator in the Western world about religion in particular. Which means we've never taught the West about Islam. Because it's not in the Bible. It's optional. The result of this is that the Western world doesn't really have a history in engaging with this. 
Right? I'm not saying that there's, there's no, no, nothing at all, but I'm saying it's not a sustained thing that the church has provided to the West because we don't have to. I went to uh, a theological college and it was absolutely typical of the theological colleges in Australia for the Protestant ones. When we did our church history, we learned up to the Council of Chalcedon in the 4th, 5th century. And then our church history went straight to the Reformation, which we're celebrating today. And that is absolutely typical of, uh, of Protestant theological colleges. That is, there's a thousand-year gap. We do the early church, then nothing happens for a thousand years, and then we do the Reformation. Now, something did happen in those thousand years. Most of Christian civilization was wiped out by Islam. But Protestants do not learn this as part of their theological education because, well, we're into the Reformation and because that's where we came from and whatever reason else, we don't learn about it. This is why our politicians can say things about Islam which can only be described as absurd because nobody knows anything about it. Nobody's got a, a, a history in dealing... Uh, no one has a, a tradition of dealing with this history, of even knowing what the history is. And so we find ourselves not knowing what to say, not knowing what to think. And as more Muslims come into the Western, into the Western world, they, provide, they, they are a challenge to us. We have the secular challenge to us, but let me tell you, rapidly growing and in terms of population, the Muslims are probably the, the, the fastest growing group. They are going to provide a challenge to us as well. And they're just not a challenge as to does God exist. They challenge us at our biggest doctrines. But I want to say to you that it's actually a great opportunity if you have a Muslim friend. And I actually love talking to Muslims. They're more than happy to talk about God compared to the other secularists who are around us. The great thing about talking to Muslims is they are meant to know about us. That's an opportunity, isn't it? It's not a religion that isn't meant to know about Christianity. They are meant to know about us. And so this is my first application for tonight as to how you respond to Islam with your Muslim friend. You can ask them, what have you heard about Christianity? So you don't need to know about Islam to talk to a Muslim. You can say to them, what do you know about Christianity? And that will be something where they go, oh, I'm supposed to know something about that. It's also a great opportunity because we can know what to prepare for. We know that when Muslims are learning about Christianity, that they're challenged, that they're taught to challenge us about the incarnation and the Trinity and those things. So we can prepare for those. And I've got a number of booklets on those subjects. And in fact, it's a great opportunity because the subjects they ask us about are actually really good subjects. They ask us about the character and nature of God, that is the Trinity. They ask us about the character and nature of Jesus, the Incarnation. They're actually topics that we should be spending a lot of time on. But in our secular context, we haven't had to spend much time on those, have we? In fact, I think for most Christians, they're very good at explaining the death of Jesus, but they're really bad at explaining the Trinity. That's my general experience. When you go around, oh, the Trinity, well, I can talk about the death of Jesus, but Trinity, Incarnation, 
I don't think we've had to have as much uh, clarity on that. But Islam is going to make sure that we do need clarity on it. So that's uh, the first half of my talk. Where do we begin when it comes to Islam? How do we understand Islam in the modern world? We need to understand what they're taught about us. That's what we need to understand. We need to understand uh, the, the history they've got and the context we find ourselves in, in that we're basically, we haven't been taught about this subject. Again, I've got the Engaging with Islam course, which is over there and can help you. It's free online, or you've got some other options over there that you can use. I've now, I just want to finish this in 15 minutes. I want to do the next one now about how do we share the gospel with a Muslim? Well, do we simply share the gospel? I'd want to say yes and no. In one sense, no. Sorry, what have I got here? Make sure I get this line. Do we simply share the gospel? Yes and no. In one sense, yes, we do just simply share it. That is, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And if you want to share the gospel with somebody, you invite them to read it or you read it with them. And they're the gospel accounts, aren't they? It doesn't matter if you're Chinese, if you're African, if you're an Eskimo, whoever you are, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are the gospel testimonies to Jesus. So that doesn't change. We do it all the same. But yet, we do present the gospel differently to different people. So in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, when he's speaking to Jews, he says, the promises that God made to our forefathers... He has fulfilled by raising Jesus from the dead. So that's how he presented the gospel generally to Jews from the Old Testament. But when he speaks to people who are worshipping idols in Athens, he says something quite different. He says to them that the idols do not worship, the idols do not represent God. Idols do not represent God. God's true representative is Jesus, whom he's raised from the dead. Just a summary. But you can see how Paul presents the gospel in different ways to different groups. The question I've had is how would Paul share the gospel with Muslims? How would he share the gospel with Muslims? Because they're not Jews. You can't do it that way. And they're not idol-worshipping Gentiles, so you can't do it that way. That's not going to work. If we look at what Paul was doing, he was basically understanding the religious culture that the different groups had, and he was presenting the gospel in a way that made sense to them. Okay? And that's how he introduced the gospel to them. So what is it about Islam that we need to keep in mind for when we think through how to present the gospel? There are two key elements. The first is that Muslims are taught to believe in all of the prophets. Can I just have a show of hands? Has anyone ever been told by a Muslim that they believe in Jesus? Yeah, a few. Yeah, okay. Well, quite a few. Almost half the people here. Muslims will say this to you. They'll say, we believe in Jesus. We love Jesus. You cannot be a Muslim if you don't believe in Jesus. Okay. In, in fact, the Quran uh, commands them to do this, and I've, I've given you a reference there. And the Quran itself talks about the Torah, the law of Moses, it talks about the gospel, the books of the prophets and the Psalms. You need to understand, though, that for a Muslim, believing in all the prophets is not a little minor thing. This is one of their core beliefs. It's the equivalent of the death of Jesus to us. 
So just as the death of Jesus to us is one of our core foundations that identifies who we are, that's what believing in all the prophets is to the Muslims. It's their identity, it's their confidence that Islam is true. Why is Islam true? Because we believe in all of the prophets. It's their assurance that they have the right religion. I know that it's true because we believe we accept all the prophets. We're not like Jews who don't accept Jesus, and we're not like Christians who don't accept Muhammad. We accept all of them. We accept all of the prophets. But the result of this is that when we speak to them about Jesus, they don't listen to us. When we go to share the gospel, they say, I don't need to hear the gospel because I already believe in Jesus. So can you see how their belief in all the prophets stops them hearing the gospel? Now, the second thing we need to keep in mind is that Islam is, Muslims are taught basically universally that the Bible has been changed. And uh, again, this is part of their preparation. And it, I found it to be universal across the Muslim cultures that I speak to. Just as they're prepared for Christian beliefs, they're prepared for the Bible and they're taught the Bible has been changed. You can't trust it. The Quran has come to correct the Bible. In fact, just saying the word Bible to a Muslim can start an argument. Saying the word Bible can start an argument. I guess for most of us here, we would know that if you're talking to a Muslim, you're probably not going to come up and say Trinity as your first word to start your sentence. You're probably going to go, oh, I won't go there. But you probably wouldn't think that the word Bible is just as much a trigger word for them as Trinity is. And so just saying Bible can start an argument. So here are these two things we need to keep in mind. Because they're taught that, they, that they're the ones who believe all the prophets, then they don't listen to us. And because they believe the Bible's been corrupted and changed, well, of course, if you try to share the gospel from the Bible, well, they're not going to accept it, are they? Now, what does this mean for how we present the gospel to a Muslim? Well, what it means is we have to present the gospel in such a way but we have to figure out a way of presenting the gospel that shows Muslims they don't believe the prophets. And we need to figure out a way of presenting and introducing the gospel which shows Muslims that the Bible has been preserved. That's what we need to do. We need to, we need to figure out a new way of presenting the gospel to this group. It's not going to be like in Acts to the Jews. It's not going to be like in Acts to the Gentiles. It's going to be a different way. And it needs to show them that they don't believe the prophets. And it's going to show them that the Bible's been preserved. Now, as it turns out, it's not that hard to do. It sounds like a hard thing to do, doesn't it? But we, and we actually need to do that step. What I've just done there, we need to do that for every other culture in the world. That's what uh, we need to do. It turns out not to be hard because while Muslims say they believe all the prophets, they don't. They only believe what Muhammad tells them about the prophets. You see, the Quran, where's my Quran here? I'll hold it up. The Quran does not have any of the books of the Bible in it. Muhammad refers to people from the Bible in the Quran, but the Quran is just one man. It's just what Muhammad said. Okay? 
Muslims do not learn about Moses by reading the law of Moses. They listen to Muhammad. They don't learn about David by reading the Psalms of David or the prophet Samuel. They just listen to Muhammad. They don't learn about uh, Job by reading the book of Job. They just listen to what Muhammad says about Job in the Quran. They don't learn about Jonah by reading the book of Jonah. They just learn about Jonah by listening to Muhammad. And of course, they don't learn about Jesus by listening to uh, the, the, the apostles of Jesus. They just listen to Muhammad. You get my idea, don't you? That Islam is all about one man telling you what to believe about everyone else. In this way, Islam is identical to the Baha'i religion. Because remember, the Baha'is believe in all of the prophets. They believe in Muhammad, but they only believe in what their prophet, Bab or Baha'i Allah, says about Muhammad. They only believe in what their prophet says about Jesus. And of course, Muslims don't find that acceptable at all. Muslims believe in the prophets in name alone, not in practice. They only believe what Muhammad says about the prophets. Now, Christianity is very different to this because the Bible is not one man. Have a look at that table in front of you and you already know what it is. But what is the Bible? The Bible is a collection of many books from many prophets written in different languages, different locations over about a 1500 year period. We don't know the exact time, but it's around 1500 years. We're actually the ones who believe the prophets, aren't we, in practice? Because if you truly believe a prophet, you've got to read them. And what Christians believe about God comes from reading all the prophets. We're the ones who believe all the prophets, not Muslims. And it's very easy to show this to Muslims when you share the gospel with them by simply, and this is my second application for tonight, stop using the word Bible. If you talk to a Muslim, don't use the word Bible because they're trained for that word. They're taught to reject it. As soon as you say it, it starts an argument. And what's worse is that when you say the word Bible, you hide what's inside our book and you make it sound like one book. You do. We don't realise this. Uh, Remember, when Jesus is talking about the scriptures, he never says the Bible. He says Isaiah says or Moses. He talks about the individual prophets. But we've changed it to make it one book, and it looks like one book, but it's not one book. It's a collection of many prophets from many languages, locations, and times. And when we say Bible, we hide to Muslims that we're the ones who read all the prophets. Now, to us, the fact that we read all the prophets is, we just go, well, of course we do. Let me tell you, we are unique The other religions of the world don't read all of the prophets. The other religions of the world have one man who tells you what to believe about the other prophets. We are unique. But Muslims think that the Bible is like the Quran. But we don't follow Paul or any one prophet. We follow all of them. It's actually hard work reading all of the prophets, isn't it? It would have been much easier if we just had one man who told us what to believe about everyone else. That would be a lot easier, a much shorter book. 
uh, rather than having to do all the hard work that we have to do in reading all the prophets. But I'm glad that the early church didn't take that path. Marcion wanted to do that, didn't he? He wanted to just have the writings of Paul. See, our Bible could have just been Paul, Romans to Philemon and a bit of Luke. Been a very different Bible, wouldn't it? But the early church said, no, Jesus is the fulfilment of the Old Testament. We believe in the Old Testament. We believe in all the prophets. So they've made the church from that time on read them. Now, what this means is that if you have a Muslim friend, then this is, what you, this is the second question you can ask them. The first one is, uh, the, the first question is, what have you heard about Christianity? The second question is, um, do you know what the Bible is? Do you know what the Bible is? And then explain that to them. Now, if you do have a Muslim friend and you want to read the Bible with them, do you know where the first Bible study you begin with is? What scripture it might be? It's the table of contents. That's your first Bible study with a Muslim. That's where if you've got 10 minutes to talk to a Muslim and you want to show them something from the Bible, take them to the table of contents and show them. Say, have you heard of Moses? Here are the books of Moses. Have you heard of David? Here's the Psalms of David. Have you heard of Job? Have you heard of, you know, just go through them and say, I believe all the prophets. I read all of them. Now, for you, again, this is just stuff we assume, isn't it? We think it's, we, we assume it, everyone does it. No, they don't. This is actually very significant to Muslims. I have a leaflet called What is the Bible? I thought it was this one. It's the same colour, but it's not this one, but you can't see it from here anyway. So here's the leaflet. It's called uh, What is the Bible? And that's what you give to your Muslim friend. So you don't need to know about Christianity to talk to a Muslim. Sorry, you don't need to know about Islam to talk to a Muslim. And the problem that most courses on Islam have for Christians is that they want to teach you loads of stuff about Islam and you forget it. You don't have to know about Islam to talk to a Muslim. You ask them what they've been told about you. And then you, uh, when you want to explain what the Bible is, you take them to the table of contents and you make it clear to them that you follow all of the prophets. Now, it's almost 8 o'clock, so I need to finish up soon. And if you want to take this further, the Engaging with Islam course can help you with that. But what I just want to do is to say, when you do start reading the Bible with a Muslim, I recommend Matthew's Gospel for reasons that I spell out in the course. And I'll just make one point as I finish up here. As you do read it, ideas will come up that the Muslim has been taught against. So Muslims have been taught against the Son of God. They've been taught against the idea that Jesus can die for our sins. How do we answer these? Well, you can answer them in terms of your systematic theology, and that's not a bad way to go. But you can also answer in a way that shows the Bible hasn't been changed. You can answer in a way that shows the Bible hasn't been changed. What I mean by that is, let's have a look at, say, and I'll just, I'll just look at a simple one, the death of Jesus. Did Christians invent the idea of a substitute sacrifice for sin? Was that a Christian invention? Did it come about with the Apostle Paul? Of course not. The idea of a sacrifice for sin, 
so that we may come into God's presence is there in the law of Moses, isn't it? And it's sung about in the Psalms. We're going up to Zion to, to worship our Lord, to offer sacrifices, to come into his temple, into, to before his face. And, and it's spoken about in the prophets in various ways. You see, the idea of a, sub, of a sacrifice for sin is not Christian. It's the message of all the prophets. The idea of the fatherhood and the son of God is not Christian. It's the message of all of the prophets. The idea that God made us in his image is not Christian. It's the message of all of the prophets. And when you explain this to Muslims, when you have to explain something, you don't even have to fully understand what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. That's a huge question. When they ask you, how can Jesus be the Son of God? That's a huge question. You need to say that that's one of the biggest questions in the universe. But I know one thing, the Son of God is the message of all the prophets. Whatever exactly Jesus' eternal generation from the Father means, it's the message of all the prophets. All the prophets talk about the fatherhood and the Son of God, and we see it coming to its fulfilment in Jesus. I know the Bible hasn't been changed because these prophets, as you can see there, there's one story of redemption, the covenants with Noah, Abraham and David all the way through, the priesthood and the sacrifice of atonement for sin all the way through, the corruption of humanity by sin all the way through, God dwelling with his people all the way through, the image of God, the fatherhood and son of God all the way through. The message hasn't changed over all these different prophets. The Bible hasn't been changed. It's written in different languages, different locations, different times. One unified message. You see, the gospel is rooted and founded in all of the prophets. Now, it takes a little while to learn this. I, I outlined this at a, a university once and I said, you see, if, if you want to explain the gospel to a Muslim, you need to ask them what they've heard about Christianity and you need to uh, show them the table of contents and then if they ask you any questions you need to show that the gospel is in fact the message of all of the prophets coming to its fulfillment in Jesus and, and this student he said oh that means I'm going to have to learn the Bible you know if I'm going to talk to Muslims I'm going to have to learn the Bible and I said yes and that's why I want to say to you I believe this is how we engage with the Muslim world. Because what I've just spelt out to you here engages where Muslims are coming from, but it requires you to learn Christianity. Whereas I want to say pretty well, most of the other approaches you'll get taught if you do other courses are all about learning the details of Islam. And I'm not interested, you know, I'm up here speaking about Islam, but I can tell you I'm an evangelist. I'm not really interested in just giving details about Islam. I'm interested in preaching the gospel and helping Christians be confident in their own faith. And we can be because when we look at the Bible, when we look at the unity of Scripture, that table before you there is, is a demonstration of the unity of Scripture. It shows us that the Bible is true. It shows us that it is the word of God spoken over, over as I said, 1,500 years coming to its beautiful fulfilment in Jesus. And it's by understanding the gospel afresh that we engage with the Muslim world and as we tell them that actually we're the ones who follow all the prophets. Amen.